It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the podcast, the award-winning nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farmer magazine. And my name's Fergus Collins. This week, we're meeting naturalist Megan McCubbin, who listeners will know from co-hosting TV shows such as Springwatch, alongside her stepfather, Chris Packham. I met up with Megan at the Hawke Conservancy Trust Centre in Hampshire to talk about her new book, An Atlas of Endangered Species, and to find out more about her message of hope and action for a better future for our wild world. Later, join me and the podcast team, plus a special guest, to talk about our own wild encounters and to delve into the podcast postbag of your messages. We've driven all the way down from Bristol to the Hawke Conservancy Centre in Wiltshire to meet Megan McCubbin. Megan, hello. How lovely to see you. Thank um, you so much for coming. Now, this place is a special place for you, and yeah. you've been coming here for quite some time, is that right? Yeah, this ever is... since I was a little girl, really. I've, I've always been you know, mesmerised by the birds that live here and the conservation work that's done. And there was one bird in particular called Marmite, and he was a, <laughs> a barn owl. They have themes every year, so all the chicks that are hatched that year have a certain named theme. And I think this year was, I don't know if it was condiments, but it was certainly food-related <laughs> things. Um, so other spreads are available, spread, isn't it? Other spreads are available, not just Marmite, but Marmite was great. Yes. Um, anyway, he was a, a barn owl, and he, at that point in time, this was in the 90s, used as an educational bird, so he would kind of go to schools and things like that. And my school, you know, asked whether they could do, could do an assembly, like those end-of-year assemblies. And we thought it would be a good idea to bring Marmite and fly him in front of all my, my school friends. So I trained, I was only about five or six at the time and so I trained it's the first time I've ever flown a bird and I was training and trying to fly Marmite and learning how to do it uh, and then we got to the assembly date and he flew off perfectly and as he was on his way back to me he just looked up and went to the beams at the top of the hall and didn't come down for a good like four or five hours oh really oh no okay <laughs> that was the first bird you flew that was the first bird I flew and, it came from the Hawk Conservancy um, yeah. and I've been I've been just so hooked on this place ever since do you this one of these questions do you fly birds often not <laughs> Very rarely. I did a falconry course, actually, funnily enough, yeah. at school. Yeah. Um, but Amazing. very, very rarely these days. But it's a, a nice opportunity to get up close to birds that, you know, normally you just see as a speck in the distance. Yeah, yeah, or absolutely. A bit closer if you're lucky. But. A calling from, yeah, from afar. And, and so, I mean, we're here because, as we've talked about, this is a place for where a lot of conservation work is based. And your book, your new book, An Atlas of Endangered Species, is all about conservation but some of the stories the stories of hope really I yeah think that's, uh, 
Yeah, I was just interested to find out a little bit more about the book and what inspired you to go down that route of well, conservation stories. I was uh, talking with my fabulous, fabulous publishing team and, and Two Roads, and they've been brilliant and so patient and <laughs> encouraging with me. Um, and we were talking about ideas because we knew we wanted to write a book, but we weren't sure exactly what the focus would be. And I'm really interested in kind of really nitty gritty science and uh, empowering people to make a difference. Uh, and I've worked a lot of, with species on the uh, illegal wildlife trade and, you know, I've been really lucky enough to travel. So I've seen, you know, the, the declines of species firsthand and things like that. So I found it was really poignant to talk about endangered species. So the book is essentially an anthology of 19 species plus humans at the end. Aren't so endangered, but very critical in the storyline, of course. Yeah, um, our, our sort of wild side is endangered, I sort of feel, and you kind of mentioned that sort of you know, yes. that disconnect anyway. Exactly, our connection yeah. has, has very much been lost. Um, but it's also, you know, as the ones that are primarily responsible for, for these extinction rates, you know, accelerating in the way that they have, I thought it was really important to talk about it and to talk about climate change and also the future of humankind, because the future is ultimately up to us. These aren't light, lightweight subjects. No. And it's kind of... But then I have lots of, que- lots of questions. I mean, we touch on these a lot in the podcast about, we, we talk about it, we meet a lot of them. I was with night- Nightingales at Net last week. Beautiful. And the stories of loss and, and, and re- you know, regain, uh, uh, you know, comeback, recovery. Yes. And it's dealing with the eco-anxiety and that sort of thing. Is that, you know, your book has quite a feeling of hope in it. Like, these are people who are doing great Exactly. I, you know, I thought I could write a book by myself about endangered species, but to me it was more important to get the voices of the people who were really on the front line. Because for me, it's people that are the hope. You know, there are some amazing people doing some amazing things, and my role really was to give them a platform to talk. So I spoke to scientists and rangers all around the world who were working with all kinds of different species. Well, what's that? Fish African eagle. fish eagle. All right, that's our first. Yeah, podcast first. Yeah, there um. we go. African <laughs> fish eagle for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, my, you know, that was my job, was just to try and get these stories out there, to try and bring awareness. But obviously, writing a book about endangered species is going to be tough. You're talking about major species declines. We're talking seriously, probably, about losing some of the species in the book, within certainly within my lifetime, if not shorter. Uh, and that is a very real reality, but I had, to, I had to find the hope, and the people are the hope. And there is some amazing stuff being done, you know, whether it's like really Jurassic Park science, like with the northern white rhinos, where there are currently embryos being frozen of a functionally extinct species that are going to be surrogacy, you know, there's a surrogacy program with southern whites, and we're going to potentially have northern white calves running around, whether it's the kakapo and sperm breeding helmets and That's sperm the drones. It's a flightless parrot, isn't it? It is. is. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a flightless parrot endemic to New Zealand. You know, and what do you say, sperm? What? A sperm uh, helmet sperm on a sperm helmet. drone. Okay, right, okay. Yeah, wow. the sperm helmet didn't work so well, so um, they're using sperm drones to fly the sperm around the islands. I don't know how much to islands. ask about this. Oh, it's a fascinating yeah, subject. You know, I met someone who's a parrot fertility specialist. Okay. My first question was, how on earth do you become a parrot fertility specialist? And um, it's very niche, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> those yeah, are the yeah, kind yeah. of people I got to talk yeah. to, which is great. Fantastic. And they were the hope for me, like their stories and their influence and their passion. And they're largely hopeful. Concerned, yes, but very definitely hopeful which is um important yeah hope is really important i mean try and bring a message of escape and hope into all of our little audio adventures our podcasts are very much british based there were three species i could see that were in britain the um the glowworm the freshwater mussel and the lady slipper orchid is that's it? Indonesia. Is it? That's oh, in Indonesia. So it's not a, not a UK not species. A UK species. Oh, no. Good correction. <laughs> not a UK species. Okay, so two that two. could be. 
And uh, people will know you from Springwatch and, and the watches and from your wild summer with, with Chris. Mm. From a sort of British perspective, what's your sort of take on our direction of travel at the moment? And how are you feeling? We talked about hope. Yeah. What, what's happening? What can be done? Personally, I, I'll start with how I'm feeling. I mean, I'm feeling pretty um, frustrated, I suppose. I think there's a lot of inaction and things aren't necessarily moving as fast as they should be, especially within government and policy, in my personal opinion. But again, there, there is a lot of really great things being done. You know, we can look at Cairngorms Connect. We can look at the Nepa State and the rewilding that's going on, the, you know, the reintroduction, albeit slow reintroduction of beavers. Yes. Um, these conversations are starting to happen and we're starting to really, I suppose, think about acting, <laughs> which is, um, you know, a step in the right direction. But it's, it, it is a slow process and we do need to kind of hit the accelerator on that. What do you think should be the first sort of steps that... I'd say it's a two-part question, really. One is governmentally or broadly policy-wise. Secondly, a bit more personal, because I certainly feel a little bit disempowered, although I'm the editor of a magazine, so I can do something about it through mm. the words of the pictures and the audio. But what about our readers and our listeners, and how can you take little steps? So two things, though, really. Shall I start with the big one? Start with the big one, okay. yeah. You know. I always find, like, law and policy is so important. Obviously, we need that as a kind of a society. However, what I can't seem to wrap my head around is how inflexible it is, because ultimately law and policy are man-made things, and if we can't update them and be more flexible with updated science, then what are we doing? Because ultimately science is coming out, it's telling us what we need to know about the climate and biodiversity, but we're saying, oh, well, there's a law in place, and oh, no, that could, like, we can't possibly change that. Or, you know, oh, really? Couldn't. So there's a sort of ossification of the kind of legal processes of how we do things, and they don't respond to... I don't think it is responding fast yeah. enough. We, we kind of see our law as set in stone, but actually we made it, we can change it if we yeah. want to, and we can change it quickly. You know, we saw how quickly the world changed during COVID. We do have the option to... to move fast when we want to it's just a case of you know as humans we are more reactive than proactive but we really need to be proactive in this situation so i should say to the listeners we're passing all these cages and enclosures full of incredible species we just passed a white stork yes um, and here's a tawny owl just sitting on a on a branch sort yeah. of branch um have a little chat with us this is sage sage and uh, you could hear that quick yeah. call, which is quite characteristic of tawny owls. And wherever you live within the UK, um, you know, if you live near a woodland, there are woodland bird species. Um, it's probably a familiar sound, especially kind of at the beginning of spring when they're yeah. kind of doing that contact call to one another when they're breeding. And he's turned to faces, or it's a, it's a he? I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. Hello. He's turned to faces. He's just sort of happily chatting away. While basking in the sunshine. Yeah. Up a little bit early, Yeah, this, Sage. Is, this is strange, in the <laughs> sunshine. Well, one of the privileges of coming here is to see these, as you said, they're not specks or, or just noises from the wood. We get to see these things close up. And yeah, and that. it's a real treat to hear that sound and to just kind of see where it's coming from, from, mm. um, you know, species. Even, you know, UK species, very few people see tawny owls because they are so well camouflaged. So you often hear them rather than see them. Or if you do see them, you know, it's when you're driving down a country lane at night and, you know, you see it take off from a, a post or even sometimes from the ground. So it's a real treat to get up close because then you can kind of build that connection and understand them more and be more empowered to kind of help them in the wild. And things like Springwatch and all the watches have done that as well, almost to the extent that it's easier to... Um there's a brimstone butterfly there. It's only the oh, second one I've seen this year. Oh, yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Beautiful. So, yeah, uh, uh, bringing, like, 
taking us into the buzzard's nest or into the tawny owl's nest and then people have got to then imagine that all that's out there we should be able to see it more often there should be more of it out there yeah, yeah. well there should be more of those those animals ultimately mm. you know we're losing a lot of our, our native species and quickly and we're losing a lot of our, our connection as well to that which is why you know I, I, I think getting the opportunity to come up close to birds um, you know, like here at the Hawk Conservancy, we're just about to walk past yeah. a, a flight demonstration at oh, okay. the moment. Well, so maybe we'll, we can get a little bit of that sort of <laughs> drama through <laughs> the voices. We'll see. We'll see what it's... Uh... This is where they fly lots of vultures and falcons right over your yeah. head, so you can really see the scale of their uh, their wingspan, which is quite quite spectacular and great for the birds. So 85% of the birds kept here at the Hawk Conservancy will come out to fly. Good enrichment for them um, and also good engagement, you know, which is, like you say, regardless of whether you're watching it through Springwatch or you come to a place like this to engage, it's can be a really powerful emotive thing to witness. Uh, we've got some kites, are these red? Those are black kites, yeah. Look, you can see the difference, the tail feathers. So with our red kites, we've got the pointed, but these aren't quite as exaggerated. Ah, I see, so they don't have that notch or that sort yeah, of... Yeah, yeah there's a little bit quite. there, but not quite the same exaggeration as our red kites. Um, I read somewhere that black kites might become more common in the UK with climate change. Yeah. Is that something you Yeah, I, I have heard about that. I mean, I think our distribution of species is going to change massively. We're going to have to get used to seeing things like bearded vultures turn up from time well, to time, like we did a couple of years ago. Very happily to, happy to see that. And, uh, it was quite unusual. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we should expect the unexpected a little bit more because obviously as climate change worsens and things continue to get wetter, hotter, colder in some places, we're going to see species migrate north and upwards in altitude. Um, and obviously the UK is positioned you know, pretty, well, relatively north. Um, so, yes, uh, we There's will see. There's a big bird going overhead right There's now. There's a big bird, yeah. <laughs> Is that part of the display? Ah, <laughs> maybe something, one of the aeroplanes going the across. The joys of, of podcasting. You t- so you talked, going back to, you talked about what, we need to change sort of on a broad scale, which is that sort of reaction, being more reactive yeah. to um, what we know and what we discover, which seems, which is not something actually we've, we've talked a lot about, but that's seems quite uh, well, it seems common sense, yeah. really. Yeah. It would seem like a normal thing to do, you know, yeah. updated science, we update our policies, you know, mm. to, to be able to work with it, um, you know, regardless of whatever it may be, maybe an outbreak of avian influenza or, mm. you know, climate strategies. There was an IPCC report which said that we really do have to stop using fossil fuels and stop investing in fossil fuel infrastructure. But we are still seemingly doing the opposite, despite science telling us differently. So we really need to flip that narrative, be more flexible with our ideas and our approach to things. And I always say from an individual perspective, you know, I've, I've told people a hundred times, you know, to, you can make your garden wildlife friendly and it's a brilliant thing to do. You know, wildflower seed, making a little kind of wildflower pot, hedgehog highways, of course, a little mm. pond. It doesn't have to be big, just a sunken washing up bowl. I've said all that kind of stuff a load of times and I think that is critically important. But the most important thing that we can all do as individuals is use our voice to talk about the issues that we care about, communicate with one another, and ultimately ask for the change that we want to see. And that's, so that is it. It's actually being, once you've become engaged, I, I feel that, yes, there's that step of becoming engaged so that you feel you need to yes. get angry about it or get motivated yeah. to, to write to an MP or to vote in a different way or whatever it is that people make their how they make their voice heard exactly. or even just talking to it over the dinner table I suppose you know. yeah and it's important it's important to feel these things you know being angry and upset obviously are not the nicest emotions we don't want to be angry and upset but they are actually very valuable emotions because they can be really powerful motivators in the right way mm. you know when you're using your voice peacefully and democratically to ask for change and to hold those who are perhaps 
doing the environment wrong to account, you know, and asking for that change, then actually it can be a really important thing. So don't be afraid of getting angry. Use it to your advantage. Turn it around and make something proactive and productive out of it. So that's sort of despair that people often talk about. It's like, oh, nothing's going to change. I don't know. I'm exhausted by it. Actually use that sort of energy in a different way or sort of find energy yeah. from that. Yeah. Okay, that's good you can, advice. You too. can flip it round yeah. and um, you think, right, get up today. You have a decision to make. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to make the world a better place or are you going to continue on as normal and c- c- carry on around the same trajectory? But we, we have that option. We can make the decisions and we can choose to use our voice in the, in the best way as possible. So you're a little bit younger than me. I'm not going to say how much younger. This is going to work that out for themselves. Do you find your contemporaries are more energised than older generations? Um, perhaps in different ways. I think uh, the younger generation, in comparison to older generations when they were younger, are probably more aware and active than they yeah. ever have been. If you're looking at I it like that. I didn't have these worries when I was growing up. You didn't? Well, not... I mean, it was a... It was definitely mine in my early 50s. So when I was a teenager, we didn't hear about climate change anywhere, really. It was mm. happening, and there were reports, but it wasn't reported at all in the media. If you think it's bad now, it was non-existent. So that's a big change. I guess I was quite lucky not to have that sort of shadow. Yeah. But I wish we'd taken action then. Yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, we could yeah. all... Well, we knew about climate change. We knew about, you know, the impacts of what's going to happen for the last... Well, over 50 years. Yeah. We've, known, we've known about this for a long time. I do think, yeah, the younger generation is a lot more engaged than perhaps younger generations have been before them. But I think that's because, you know, climate change and biodiversity loss. Beautiful blackbird. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that yeah. great? I love Blackbird's my favourite song. In all these exotic kind of raptors, we've got yeah. this very close blackbird. Look at that. Stunning. It is a brilliant song, isn't it? It's, oh, is my it one of your, it's your favourite Yeah, favourite, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's just so simple, but perfect. Listen. That's so, oh, beautiful. I'm glad Jack, Jack is here, I should say. Listeners will know Jack. Jack is the producer. He's got a shotgun mic, so he's capturing this. This, uh, symphony. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good opportunity, actually. I wanted to talk more about the kind of your personal interests and your, Mm. you know, so your Blackbird favourite songs. But where do you, you, you live sort of south, South, South England. Yeah. Well, yes. So I split my time between the New Forest in the South, where you know I do a lot of my work in the South of the UK. But over the last year, I've been spending a lot of time up in the Highlands in Scotland. So I go between the two fairly frequently. Is that for, for work or is it a pleasure or just you love that landscape? Uh, I mean, I love that landscape and the wildlife there. And, mm. you know, obviously the, the hub of the natural history unit for the BBC is in Bristol and it's mm. a beautiful place to be. So a lot of people that get into wildlife television will go and live in Bristol, which is a great, great way of doing it. Um, I quite like being out in the wild. Mm. So I thought, well, why not live where the wildlife is and come back to Bristol to, you know, network and do things that way. Yeah, yeah. Do the voiceovers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come back and, and network, but actually live where the animals are. So we're going through a little tunnel here, so the, the audio would be quite interesting. Yeah, we're going... Pick up here. We're either side of the burrowing owls. Oh, and, and, um, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> they are incredibly... There they are. They're like little sort of dumpling birds. <laughs> and they blend into this sort of sand. They are, they're stunning. They're mm. really very sweet. 
They are gorgeous. All the little burrows, they, they nest underground. Yes, the... yes, that's right. So they'll, they'll, they'll go in underground, and but they will come out, they kind of um, come out dusk and dawn and are more active during the night, obviously, as owls are. So, yeah, during the day, obviously, you've got the thermoregulation in tunnels, so it's going to keep them nice and cool where they live in more of a warmer environment. But yeah, they're just, they're very sweet natured little birds. I like burrowing owls a lot. So, once upon a time, I interviewed Chris, and he told me that his favourite place to go in Britain was a patch of downland near to here, about mm. an hour away, Martin Down. Oh yes, yeah. Um, so do you have a place where, where you go to find that sort of, just the density, the richness of wildlife that gives you, fills your tank? So, I mean, you talked about the Highlands or yeah. Scotland. I find patches of that everywhere. I think for me, because I've always moved around a lot, even when I was younger, I was mm. always, you know, I always moved all the time. So actually I'm quite, I can find the patches of wild wherever I am and I get the same kind of joy from that as I would perhaps knowing a place That's really well. That's a nice thing to say, that is you don't have to travel far, you can find it. You, you can, can I find, can find like yeah. that blackbird singing just then, like that mm. for me, the other day I spent 10 minutes, I was walking, I had to be somewhere, I ended up being late because there's a beautiful blackbird singing and I just stopped and I listened because yeah. I couldn't move, I was like, I was just kind of almost paralysed by how beautiful its song was. I didn't want to go anywhere and that for me was like, that's my wild for the day, that was good. So whether, you know, I'm lucky to have badgers and, and pie martins occasionally visit in the garden up in Scotland. And that's great whenever they're there. But I can, I can, I can find little patches of wild anywhere in the cities. But if I can get out to the countryside, I will yeah. inevitably more likely be found there than in the heart of yeah, the city. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, yeah, and New Forest is obviously quite, is that where you grew up? That's, that's where I grew up, yeah. And so it's quite a good playground for... It's a brilliant playground, yeah. In lockdown, we were lucky we had goshawk nesting just... 15 metres away from the house, which was fantastic. You know, we've got gold crest everywhere at the minute. We've got, we've got so much, you know, so many different things. We've got night jars churring right now. It's a beautiful place. Great for fungi too, really good fungus there. <laughs> you know, but I'm also, I really love the marine environment and I don't think we appreciate that enough. Like, there's obviously the blue effect where people are drawn to the sea to, you know, experience the calmness of the ocean waves. And I, I've always been really interested in marine biology. I've, I'm a big shark fanatic. So, you know, blue sharks in, in, off the coast of Cornwall are just phenomenal. But any time I can get to the sea and get on my paddleboard mm. is also my happy place. <laughs> you, you sound like you've nailed it in terms of marrying your work with your passions uh, in terms of wildlife, nature, conservation, science. Gosh, getting out into the, into, to see, <laughs> see blue sharks and, and to be kind of presenting about it or... Yeah, or, I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky to get to do what I do. And one of my favourite things is that I get to meet people who know way more about the subject than I do. Yeah. And I get to pick their brains and learn from them. So yeah, no, I mean, I'm very lucky that my, my work and what I'm interested in are one and the same thing. You know, for me, going out and, and talking about wildlife to people and engaging with people, getting excited about, you know, the biology of a glowworm is equally as exciting to me about talking about the biology of, I don't know, a rhino. Yeah. And if I can get someone engaged and stuff, then I'm, I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled. So the two marry perfectly for me. I'm, yeah, very fortunate. And I have a couple of questions. One is uh, that always interests me, the pathways people take to get to how they get to. I mean, what, what advice would you give some, a, a young person, perhaps thinking about their GCSEs or even A-levels, and thinking, gosh, I'm considering this life that... Obviously, I bet there's lots and lots going on behind the scenes that's kind of like all the difficulties of... Yeah, it's not but, all glamorous, no. I must say. It's not all the time out with sharks and stuff. It's a lot of the time or, or behind the computer. No, 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 it doesn't happen very often. It's a nice treat. Um, but yeah, what, what sort of would you... Is, is there a sort of single bit of advice that you'd have to 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, that comes in two forms, really. The first thing is, you know, be kind to yourself. It's a really hard time for young people at the moment, especially going through exams and having to think about what you want to do in the current modern world we live in is really challenging. So don't be too hard on yourself. And, and remember that exams are important, but there's also a lot more to life. So, you know, remember to get practical experience, go out and I was volunteering as much as I could when I was younger to get hands-on experience to figure out what I wanted to do. So go and just explore in that way as well. So yes, study as hard as you can and enjoy that. But if you're not as good at studying, don't worry about it. Just go out and... There are um, other ways. Volunteering is already good. Did yeah. you ever volunteer here? I didn't. I wish I did. I wish yeah. I did. I volunteered at a local wildlife hospital when I was younger and uh, the Wild Heart Sanctuary in the Isle of Wight. But I should have done. That's really interesting. So, so that's nice advice, sort of not to sweat it too much, that yeah. there's ways around the, the, uh, the rather channeled ways Definitely. that we send children along. To, so to, I'm actually not very academic in the conventional sense. Hmm. So I, um, I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was seven, and I'm quite severely dyslexic. And that was a real struggle at school. I found it really hard because I didn't understand why I didn't learn in the same way as everybody else. You know, people would pick maths up a lot quicker than I did, even biology, all that kind of stuff. It was just came to others a lot easier than it did me. And I was always the one with extra time and people would leave the exam room and I'm like, why am I still sat here? Why am I different? And I didn't quite get that. Um, and it took me a long time. I mean, I had a brilliant dyslexic support teacher, Phil Roseblade, who really taught me the skills that I really needed to recognise that actually it wasn't so much that I didn't fit the school system, it was that the school system didn't fit me. So I had to kind of relearn the skills to go and teach myself science and maths outside of school so that I could learn how I learn best. Because the school system is great for a lot of people, but it's not very good for neurodivergent people. And, 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 I, and I definitely fell into that crack and it was, that was hard to get back out. So it's hard to kind of claw your way and find the confidence to know that actually it's okay to be different and think differently. In fact, thinking differently is a brilliant thing and we need divergent thinkers, neurodivergent thinkers, to give a whole variety of ideas. So that is really, really critical. But to, to figure out that, you know, actually it's not you that's failing is quite, quite a challenge, but you have to just like, learn how you learn best. And that's, that's kind of what I did. And when I wrote the book, I wrote it with dyslexic thinkers in mind. It's been designed for dyslexic readers in terms of its font and its spacing. So I hope for anybody, no matter who you are, it's not obviously dyslexic friendly, you won't notice it, but for dyslexic readers, I hope that when they come to it, actually it's a lot easier. How interesting. So you've gone the, the typeface and the font, oh, the font yeah, and the, the, the layout. Colours, is, yeah, everything is kind of more dyslexic okay. friendly. But even my nan, who, who struggles to read books these days, she's not dyslexic, um, but she can read it. It's just clearer. And you wouldn't notice it if, you know, if I didn't tell you that it's made for dyslexic readers. But you notice actually probably it's, it's quite nice on the eye. It's not as straining. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, usual books. Brilliant. What, uh, have you got a plan for the next book? Yes. Well, I will be writing another one, and I need to get on the case oh, counted, imminently. Just, just clouds of birds flying above the... Uh, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, we've got lots of the vultures coming through there. Yeah. We've got some of the kites too. Yeah, this is amazing. Well, you know. Incredible. When you see vultures next to kites, I mean, you realise actually the size difference. Quite spectacular. That's lovely. There must be what 20, 30 birds. Are they, they, yes. These are all captive birds that have been let out for the day. Yes, there's, yes. There's, there's no, no sneaky red kites come along for. Uh, they they pique their interest. So the native yeah. red kites certainly become interested because obviously when you have a cloud of large birds like this, it means that something interesting is going on. Perhaps there's a big chunk of food somewhere. So you will get the natural wild red kites and mm. sometimes buzzards and stuff coming in to take a look. But 
yeah, I mean, it, it, it's such a great routine and it's amazing to see our kind of native species with some species that are yeah, yeah, <laughs> actually yeah, homed yeah. around the world. But um, oh, it's great for these birds. <laughs> there's a pigeon. One there's over. one. There's yeah, a native they, they bird. They weren't interested at no. all. These are vultures. No, they saw a vulture and thought, I'm going to get out of here. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of raptors. <laughs> yes. Um, so the new book is, but we, we, you're not at liberty to say yet what it's... Not be. yet, not yet, okay. but uh, I'm, I'm working on it. I, it's a work in progress about the concept, so I'm still, I'm still thinking and ironing out the details, but I, yeah, I, science is going to be at the core of it, conservation will be at the core of it, and championing some underdogs inevitably will have to be at the core of it, because I love an underdog, they need a bit of love. We like underdogs, yes. Yeah. We start out as underdogs, now we're still underdogs. <laughs> when do you become an overdog? <laughs> Not at all. Um, when will you next be on TV? Is it Springwatch is coming up, obviously, at the end of Springwatch is coming up at the end of May, so I'm not live on Springwatch anymore. I will be doing a pre-recorded film, which I'm really looking forward to, which uh, they're hooking me up a tree to go and look for some bats, which is good fun. Okay. Uh, and Animal Park starts. Animal Park should be on. We're not sure of the dates just yet, but it'll be on towards the end of the summer. Tell us more about Animal Park. So Animal Park has been running for a very long time. It's hosted at Longleat Safari Park. Um, so I'm there with Kate Humble, Ben Fogel and Hamza Yassim. You might know Hamza yes, from his um, uh, sequined yeah. <laughs> hip movements and Strictly Come Dancing, yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously the winner He's, of this year. mean cha-cha-cha, yeah. Um, yeah, so our, our job, I suppose, is to come in and meet some of the animals and some of the amazing keepers that work there, uh, highlight a bit about the science and their behaviour and their physiology, um, and just basically engage the next generation with, with these animals that we have that are, you know, beautifully looked after and full of character, and it's about education and, um, yeah, giving a sloth a a shower. Okay. BBC One is Animal Park and Spring cool. City. Cool, excellent. Okay, well, and and then Strictly in the autumn. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no plans. <laughs> Chris not being tempted. I bet he's been no, asked. No, I yeah, no, I, yeah. I'm not sure it's his thing to be honest. Uh, yeah. Dancing is not. It doesn't doesn't go well. Yeah. And uh, sequins. I've seen him try actually. Mm, uh, I'm so we sorry. won't talk about wildlife photographer of the year 2006. Oh, dear, I said yeah. I wouldn't talk about. Again, I'm probably so sorry. I don't, I, I don't know what happened, but I can imagine. <laughs> Megan, that's absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Well, that was a great outing to meet Megan at the Hawk Conservancy near Andover, Hampshire. Really fascinating to hear her sort of her passion, her, her hope, because I think loads of us who love nature have a bit of eco-anxiety at the moment. And to have someone who's got that passion, understanding scientific knowledge, and is pulling it all together in her book, which is brilliant. I'll come to her book in a minute, but it gives me hope for the future. And I think she's got a big following and lots and lots of passion to sort of change, not just government policies, but also individual actions. And I liked some of the things she said that we can all do to make a difference. Also making a difference and <laughs> giving us hope are the podcast team. And I'm in the studio with Hannah, Jack and special guest, Kevin Parr, who's joined us. Hello. Kev, lovely to see you. And lovely to see you, Hannah and Jack. Hello. The fish um, squad are back. The fish yeah, squad, yeah. Oh, yeah we, haven't cool. been, we haven't all been together since we went fishing. Canal crew. Oh, okay. that's better. That's better. Nice. Canal crew. 
the tench team. The pike party. Let's stop this now. Uh, Or do you want to keep going? The pike party is lovely. I think that's some of your best work. Yeah. Gosh, in my my dotage. Um, What did you think? Um, It's the first time we've had Megan on the podcast. She's so positive. It was so lovely to get that kind of enthusiasm and just to feel like things are actually happening. We're not sitting here worrying about the fact that things are declining. It's like positive action is happening. Jack? Well, I, I was there. I you were there, of you course you were yes. there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was yeah. there, live in the flesh. Yeah, thank um, goodness Jack was there, because the sound recording was was much better than when I did it on my own. I thought it was great. I think it, it was nice to hear someone else that's sort of similar age to me, that's so passionate about it, but also not just going, oh, this is bad. Oh, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. Oh, God, let's stop doing this. There was a lot of sort of, well, these are the things that are bad, but I'm still quite hopeful that this can change, and it's kind of nice to have that hopeful tinge over everything and what what listeners didn't hear is that jack fell in love (laughs) jack fell in love and um it's quite a story i think maybe would you like to share it or is it still is it still early days i did mention i think one of the last episodes i did meet my soulmate um a little guy called sage sage the tawny owl yeah it was a little owl uh you hear him he makes a feature he's the little one that actually makes a noise no no other bird there Really made a noise. Well, there were some African fish eagles, which I was. thought those were cool. There a was. first for the podcast. But um, Sage really went for it. He really uh, yeah. Yeah, he gave us... took a shine to you too, actually. So he did. Um... It might have been the fluffy microphone that he may have <laughs> thought was a rat or something, but uh, he, he seemed to like me, and I like him too. I miss him. Kev, have wow. you been to the Hawk Conservancy? I have a lot. Have yeah, okay. I used to live in Hampshire and live in Winchester. I first went when I was about five, I think. The guy who set it up, Reg Smith, was um, he was quite cantankerous, didn't like kids, but obviously they had to get school parties in. And I was the one who, they're doing a display and they've got flying a kestrel. And he's saying, the kestrel is the only British bird of prey that harvests. And on my arm straight up. And the first time he sort of, he eventually looked at me and he didn't sort of, you know, but he just looked at me and... and I said, I've seen a buzzard hovering. I've seen a buzzard. Oh. And he just turned around and just said, the kestrel is the only British <laughs> bird of prey that hovers. <laughs> so I scarred a bit. But um, but no, I went and then we became members years later and I'd go a lot because the displays are just superb. And there's a 2 o'clock display or 2.30 display and they get some big birds out. And they were out. Were we, they? they timed the interview for two two uh, o'clock, uh, so we were walking around and we couldn't get too close. So there was a big crowd of people there, but the shadows of these birds came over yeah. us from time to time. Wow. And I was so focusing on trying to sort of you know interview in a in a good you know professional way that uh, so we focused on a blackbird <laughs> of all the birds that we we could have seen and sage the owl. Sage. Mm. So Never great, forget. great experience. It's a good thing and nice. Sorry, nice to hear. Um, Really interesting to hear um, Megan speak, and 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 she mentioned Springwatch, and she is. We're sort of halfway through Springwatch. She has been she thrown in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because yeah, yeah. Yolo's been taken poorly, and um, and and she's a pro. I mean, she's just. Yeah, I think that's it. She's she is so knowledgeable and and so good at delivering it, and so yeah, yeah. I I didn't have that at her age. It's ridiculous. No. Yeah. It's, Amazing. Well, her book is called An Atlas of Endangered Species, and it's published by Two Roads. So we are going to give away a copy, a signed copy of this book, later in the podcast, so keep listening. 
we always have a section around about this time in the plot chat where we talk about sightings and happenings that what we've been up to i'm going to step in first because i cited you <laughs> you did <laughs> i was on holiday in dorset Yes. Uh, in a static caravan in an orchard and you didn't live very far up we don't live very far away. Oh, no, I was in one of the apple trees <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was very jolly I, I got to see Kevin Parr's house which is like for regular listeners will know Kev's passion for nature and wildlife and for just all things wild and wonderful particularly reptiles but approaching his house it felt I felt like it was like Gerald Durrell's house on Corfu <laughs> It was so marvellous and magical, and I took my, my wife and son, and we were all spellbound. Uh, it was lovely to have so you. You're my sighting. I always imagine it like uh, Snow White. You start singing, and all, oh, all the animals comes. start coming yeah. in. And It's a bit like that. The Robin, though, who, who has his dinner, in, and, and Mrs. Robin, but there are two, they've persuaded us to feed them inside because then the sparrows don't get involved oh. just robins but then they started popping in and then suddenly like, who are those strange people <laughs> they wouldn't quite have it so they weren't too happy no no but, but we but, did find this grass snake which was nice which was splendid yeah really good to kind of and some slow worms yeah and i felt that like i'd been probably kevin pard so <laughs> highlight of the holiday right. but kev uh I mean, obviously, I don't expect you to reciprocate your sighting, <laughs> but um, what what have you been up to? A lot of work, which isn't good, but not in May and June. Oh no, the worst time. But um, yeah, interestingly, sort of worrying, and then also countering that with positivity, which perhaps is apt considering the podcast that we've just heard. Because I've been worrying about the grass snakes, which haven't appeared in usual numbers. And worrying about the lack of insects. A lot of people have been talking about that on social mm. media and lack of birds. And But equally, I can't remember a better year for hawthorn blossom. It's just yeah. been unbelievable. Yeah. It's, and it's still going. And there's, and that, you know, the cow parsley's been amazing. Oh. And um, Dorset lanes and cow parsley. Yeah. I drove at like one mile an hour, just tailbacks when I took it all in. Wow. You've actually teed me up perfectly for my sighting. Oh, fantastic. Which is everything is so folliferous. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> it's mm. definitely not. Floriferous. Floriferous. Is that a word? Yeah. Extra flowery. Oh, okay. Everything seems like it's blooming at ridiculous levels. The roses are gigantic and numerous. It's Do you know it's why? incredible. No idea. Kev, any I, I'm guessing Jack? partly maybe it's it's how it normally is in the later spring because it was colder in early spring and everything's come at once and everything's come really hard which may be the reason because they're still i mean last week they're still well garlic out in flower mm. i mean it's only just going over and that's normally gone by april it really doesn't hang around so and now and yet yesterday i saw a whole bank full of um meadow sweet which is normally a sort of summer flower. So and that's already already flowering. Yeah, although that spot is odd. They do it does appear very early. But it's weird. I think maybe it is just So you've really spotted you've really noticed I've that, really Hannah. noticed yeah. it, yeah. And um yeah, that's interesting. Uh Jack, have you been been very warm. It has mm. been warm. It's very been like, warm. It's a good time to go to Dorset. And stop <laughs> yeah. beaches. Just avoid yeah. all the apple trees because you don't know who's lurking. I spent a bit of time in the garden again. Just sort of tidying it up, planting a few plowers. Plowers? Plowers. This is another new... Oh. I don't know who to give the book to. <laughs> Hannah or Jack for new words. This planting some more flowers. Mm. I've got in a bit of a habit of buying slightly dying plants from a local supermarket oh, of mine just so to nice. sort of 
prove <laughs> just to, to give her a little bit of life. Megan McCubbin would like you going for the underdog or the yeah. un- yes. under the underplant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just planting those, and the, the the little wrens are back um, from last year. I, I, I'm assuming it's the same. I'm going to say for the the fairy tale story, it's the same ones. Yeah. It's a, a little man and a little lady uh, wren that sort of jump around the garden. They're quite brave. They get c- quite close. So I've been keeping the, the feeders and stuff up for them. Lovely. So they've been having a great time. So sweet. Very good. They oh, are lovely. Jack's garden news. That brings me to pond news, actually. Mm. Pond news alert. Mm. Update on the pond, uh, which regular listeners will know that the pond is a general disaster area. Even though it's a fully wildlife-friendly pond, every year I put in frog spawn and it sort of vanishes. And this year I'd removed all the fish and really had high hopes that a huge bundle of frog spawn that I picked out of a drying-up puddle in it went, all hatched, clouds of tapples. Two weeks later, no tapples. However, I've just started seeing some really big, fat tapples who've been hiding away in just sunbathing in the shallows. And then they sort of swish like a miniature pike into the depths. Very cool. So some have survived. Happy pond news. Although it's drying up, there's been no rain for so long. So the pond is drying up, so it might be a race against time. So tune in next week for for more pond news. So that's our news. We're all going to have a slice of fruit bread here while we we pause for breath after all that dramatic news. It's time for your news, though. And Jack, have you got the podcast? I I see your bow double under the podcast post bag. It's been another bumper week. My back is broken carrying the podcast post bag. It's still bumper. It's still full up. We're getting through them. But it's lovely. It's lovely. Thank you so much for sending in these. I I see you've picked one up for Hannah to read, which would be lovely. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So I've got a letter here from Sophie Burrard-Lucas, and she says, Here is a sound recording of an early May morning dawn chorus in Longborough, a small village in North Cotswolds, Gloucestershire. It was recorded at 4.20am today, and lots of different bird species can be heard. It's not a very long recording, but I hope it might be useful. And here it is. How lovely. Nice to get a dawn chorus. There are birds out there singing. Thank you, Sophie. That's really, really beautiful. In fact... So it's definitely our sound of the week, I think. Yeah. And it deserves 100%. the Atlas of Endangered Species, Megan's book that we talked about earlier. And we'll pop it in the post to you, Sophie. So I've had a lovely tweet from Phil Harris, who just sent me this lovely message. And he said, uh, I've been thoroughly enjoying listening to the podcast while working on drawings and prints in my studio. I love the range of topics covered and the heartfelt celebration of all aspects of the natural world. It's a balm on days when things are feeling hectic. And he tells me a little story about um, some, some wildlife encounters on a recent trip to North Cornwall. He says, walking along the coast path, my partner spotted a kestrel perched on a bush right next to us. It was amazing to see it so close. But later that same day, a young hare ran towards us on the path back from the beach, but retreated after seeing our small but fierce chihuahuas. <laughs> this encounter with the hare brought me such joy. There's something so magical and otherworldly about these creatures. I bet you see plenty of hares in... Um, a fair few. Otherworldly is the absolute word for them. They are, their eyes are incredible. And when they're sort of in a form and ears tucked back and the eyes on top, they just look amazing. Oh, it's so lovely, isn't it? That eye is so feral. Uh, it's, it's, uh, but it's otherworldly. Otherworldly, yeah. yeah like it's really odd. 
view into the ancient gods, I think, when you see them. It's sort of... Oh, and there's an interesting thing that I discovered reading about, because it's popularly believed that Romans introduced brown hairs along with rabbits, and then rabbits died out, Normans then reintroduced them. But there is archaeological evidence suggesting that both species were here pre-Roman occupation. But the bones that have been discovered have not been butchered. So they were buried ceremonially rather than being eaten, which for hunter-gatherers or or Celtic tribes, that suggests um, that these animals were really revered because there can't have been a lot of food. Well, I mean, there would have been more food. There's a lot of effort to catch a hare and then to not eat it afterwards. um, But similarly in the Orkneys where they found lots of white-tailed eagles buried with tribespeople and, and things. That was obviously, there was more to it. They hadn't been just killed. They were accompanying them on the journey onto the next world. So, yeah, otherworldly. That's well, incredible. Nice one. Thanks, Phil. Sorry. A bit of a hair loom, if you will. <laughs> hair loom. <laughs> oh, it's a bad hair day for Jack. <laughs> Thanks, Phil, for, for getting in touch. If anyone wants to contact me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Views, so you can always contact me directly if you have some thoughts on the podcast. Before we go... This Kiki King has written to us lots of times and she's just sent this, this very kind email, but I, I, I want to just read it, particularly to Hannah and Jack. I love the podcast about Nep and the Nightingales. They remind me so much of the Northern Mockingbird near me. And we heard her Northern Mockingbird recording last week. I made sure I listened to it while walking through a little shrubby wood to have a more immersive experience. As always, I so enjoyed hearing the team afterwards. I mean, really Is there anything lovelier than Hannah's voice? (laughs) I could record her reading an instruction manual and find it utterly soothing. That's That's a a podcast idea, though. Yeah, (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) And it's a joy to hear stories from Jack and his thoughts and observations while you're getting into serious topics. I'd like to thank Kiki in a sarcastic way because now they're going to be intolerable. (laughs) Thank you, Kiki. That's so sweet. Isn't that lovely? Thank you for your last episode, Fergus. It's been a bit of pleasure. <laughs> it's just been him now. Yeah, yeah, true. I don't, I'm no longer needed. My work is done. <laughs> but Kev's here to celebrate with us tonight our 200th episode. I know this one at the moment is episode 198, I think. So in two weeks' time, our 200th episode will be out. And that's quite an achievement. So thank you to everybody for listening, to everyone in this room for your help put this podcast together, and for all our other contributors. And here's to the next 200. As I say, 200th episode coming out in a couple of weeks. But for now, that's it for this week. Join us again next week for another lovely escape into the British countryside.